Church, it is such a delight to get to be with you, singing songs of worship to Jesus and then savoring him together in communion. And now we get to hear him speak through his word to nourish our souls all the more. Would you pray with me as we ask him to illumine our hearts this morning? Father, thank you again for the sacrifice of your son, Jesus, that we might have new life in him. Lord, we pray this morning for Robbie over in Liberia. Lord, in this moment even, we pray that he would feel and sense your spirit filling him. We pray as he asked for health this week, that he might be able to teach and energy for it. And we pray for each student that they will minister to, that you would move mightily in their hearts. Lord, as we open your word together this morning, would you teach us by your spirit? Would you fill us with him? Illumine us, Lord, and teach us the things that you want us to know this morning. Encourage our hearts in you. Strengthen our faith, Father. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we're going to continue our journey in Acts. It has been quite an amazing ride so far. We're going to look at Acts chapter 17. So if you have your Bible with you, you could tap there or turn there, whichever you prefer. If you don't have a Bible this morning, there are Bibles in the front here and in the back corners. We'd love for you to go grab one if you need one to follow along. And if you don't have a readable Bible at home, it would give us so much joy if you would take one with you this morning so that you would have access to this precious word throughout the week with you. We're in the middle of a section of Acts that is covering how the Apostle Paul and his companions were spreading the gospel throughout the world. It's been amazing. Throughout the Roman Empire, they go proclaiming a crucified king. And what we're about to read is another snapshot really condensed snapshot of what they were up to and what God's Spirit was doing in and through them. As we read it this morning, I want to say something that's very obvious probably to most of you, but I think it's worth saying. What we're about to read in Acts 17 is a real historic account of real people who really followed Jesus and were full of His Spirit. These are real people and and these things really happened, amazing as it sometimes sounds to our ears. Let's read together Acts chapter 17, verses 1 to 9. Acts 17, 1 to 9. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out into the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, 
and Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's another amazing account of faithfulness to Christ. I want to start this morning with some important context that will help bring out some of these details and will explain for us why was this such a big deal that a riot ensued? Why a mob? Why so much in response to what Paul and Silas were doing? You remember, it's been a few weeks now, but in Acts chapter 16, Paul was in Philippi. If you remember this story, and he encountered a girl who was full of a demonic spirit that gave her the ability to tell fortunes. She was a slave to that spirit and to the men who profited from her ability to tell fortunes. Paul, in Jesus, by Jesus, cast that demon out so that that, woman, that girl was free of it. The problem, though, was for the people who owned that girl, their source of income from her went away. So, Paul ends up in jail. Again and again, as he preaches the gospel, he finds himself in trouble. Eventually, miraculously, he is out of jail, and this is the first place that he goes, Thessalonica. Each one of the little town, the cities there, Amphipolis, Apollonia, and then Thessalonica, were about one day's walk from each other. So maybe 20, 30 miles-ish from each other. So it probably took him a few days to get to Thessalonica. Each of the, pla- the places mentioned were in the region of Macedonia. This city, Thessalonica, had a population probably about 100,000. So it wasn't a small place at all. It was primarily a Greek city culturally, and it was the capital of that Macedonian region in the Roman Empire. I know some of you like maps, so I have a map for you. It'll be on the screen here, so you can see exactly where we're talking about. Thessalonica is in that box in the upper middle, and you can see Philippi and Amphipolis and Apollonia, that journey that Paul would have taken. And then you see Berea to the west there. That's what we heard about last week was Berea. So this is this journey that Paul is taking as he's traveling through this Macedonian region. Remember, Paul is in Macedonia because he had a vision from the Lord one night. He saw a vision of a Macedonian man crying out, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul went. This is in Luke, Luke, uh, Acts 16 that Luke recorded for us. So they were in Thessalonica because of God's call on their life. They were being faithful to him and obedient to him. And it's really remarkable to me as we follow these apostles through Acts, the way they keep holding to Christ the way they will joyfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus, even when they know every single place they go, they face opposition, they face danger, they face insults. And despite that, they keep doing it. They keep imitating Jesus. They never seem to be alarmed or surprised by the darkness they encounter. They're convinced Jesus is the Christ, and they are going to proclaim the gospel about him. And they know that as they do that, and as Jesus' kingdom grows and expands, evil will continue to cry out. It will gasp and thrash and cause problems for them along the way. 
but they know that evil is not overcome with more evil. Evil is only overcome with good. And that's what we see happening again here in these nine verses today. Religiously, really quickly here, Thessalonica was actually pretty diverse. So we know from what we just read that there were enough Jews to support a synagogue, to have their own building like that. But then there would have been a lot of people, probably most people, who worshipped the Greco-Roman pantheon of gods. So like Zeus, Apollos, Aphrodite, Hercules. Then we know from historical record there were also temples to Egyptian gods in this city. And then, of course, there was a very important temple to the emperor, to Caesar. This is an important part of our story, where Caesar was worshipped as God. It was diverse. Sometimes in our day, when we have a lot of religious diversity and a variety of opinions around us, it can be easy when we look back in history to kind of assume that there was this uniformity of religious belief. Everyone used to believe the same thing, and now today, everyone's believing different things. We're surrounded by people that believe very differently than us. What I think is amazing and really neat about as we've walked through Acts is that you can see that the followers of Jesus in the first century, as they went throughout the Roman Empire, were not surrounded by uniform religious belief. In fact, they were among a very diverse group of religious people and had to learn what it would look like to live among people and love people who believed very differently than them, just like us today. We aren't the first ones who get to go to work and and go through our neighborhoods and be surrounded by people who might not follow Jesus. And I think today as we look at them, we can see what it might look like to do that in a prayerful, subversive way that brings light and life to the places that we live. So Luke records that Paul, as was his usual pattern, once he was in Thessalonica, went to the synagogue to proclaim the gospel. You can look at verse 3 for that. Look at what he specifically said in verse 3. This is what he was really working on proving. That it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. And then it says, And this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. This seems so basic. I mean, we just celebrated the Lord's Supper together. What we just celebrated was what Paul is proclaiming here and reasoning with them and trying to prove to them. Jesus is the Christ, and the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. But that specific thing is what so inflamed things that a riot broke out in that city. Chaos breaks out, and more on that in a few minutes. But right now, I want to just slow down a little bit and look closely at what Paul was saying to them and what was so controversial to the Jews of that time. First, the word Christ. The word Christ. What exactly does that mean? For those of us who have been in the church for a while, the word Christ is something that we say regularly and normally. We read it in the Bible. We read Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, But because we say it so often, we can actually be in danger of losing the meaning of it, losing the deeper meaning of what's going on with that word and the largeness of it. Some of you remember that before I became a pastor here, I was a missionary on several different university campuses in the United States and in Canada. And the university campus is such a unique setting to do missions because it is so diverse and it is such a place of question asking and seeking 
You have students who are nearby the university, and you have students like, who grew up nearby, and then you have students coming from all over the world, and all of them are together in this place to grow in their field of knowledge, but also in living life. And that's where it was exciting for me as a missionary. One of the things I enjoyed the most was how often students would ask questions about Jesus. And uh, one thing I remember in very particular was a question that I got once about Christ, about that word Christ. A student who I had never met before walked up to me, and he knew that I was a follower of Jesus because of what I was up to. And he asked me, is Christ Jesus' last name? And for a second, I just paused because I didn't know maybe he's just like messing with me, you know, trying to make me look foolish or something. But no, he was sincere. Is Christ Jesus' last name? And then he went on, is that how Christians distinguish their Jesus from others in history who were named Jesus? It's actually a fair question if you think about it. No one had ever asked me before that question, and I don't think until that moment I had thought very deeply about that and about the significance of that word, Christ. Did Mary Christ give birth to Jesus Christ? Is that where this name comes from? Well, my answer to him was, great question, but not quite, not exactly. While Christ does do what he asked, Christ does distinguish Jesus as unique from all their Jesuses, when you attach that word to him, it's not his last name. It's his title. Christ is his title that also describes a function. And we do this all the time in normal everyday life. We have titles for things that describe a function that we use with a person's name, like president or prime minister or doctor or professor. When you use that title attached to someone's name, you expect a certain function from them, what they will be like and what they do as a job and a career. That's what Christ is with Jesus. Christ is the Greek way of saying another word, Messiah. You may have heard the word Messiah before. Christ and Messiah, when you hear those, that's referring to the same person, just different languages. Most of our English translations, the one we read from this morning, will use the word Christ instead of Messiah. So Christ is a title, but what does it mean to be called Christ? Well, briefly, it means the anointed one, the king of God's choosing, the one whose good bringing reign would never come to an end. The Christ was the one who would bring justice for God's people, and with that justice, he would establish peace for them. He would defeat all of their enemies, and he would fully restore them in their special place as God's people. The Christ would set all things right once and for all. So when we say Jesus Christ then, we're saying that Jesus is God's long-promised saving king. With those ideas in mind then about what that word Christ, really thick word Christ is about, I think it's easy to understand why this was such a controversy to proclaim to Jewish people of a suffering and dying Christ. It's easier to understand why that would be so hard to believe and why it would be so hard to understand. Because a crucified Christ with that function attached to him seems like nonsense. It seems like a contradiction. Surely if Jesus was the Christ, God's anointed one, God would not allow him to be crucified. I'm sure that was one of the things they said. And a Christ that is subject to death 
seems very ineffective at bringing about peace and justice the way he was supposed to. I mean, how in the world would he be able to deal with the people's enemies if those very enemies killed him? You see what was probably going on in their heads? This was absurd. It was offensive to them. But this truth that Jesus was and is the Christ and that the Christ needed to suffer and die was what Paul was proclaiming and it is found throughout our New Testament. I want to share just a couple examples of it with you this morning. The first one is from Luke chapter 24. Now this is the resurrected Jesus talking to a confused disciple, someone who had followed him for a couple years and did not understand this. Why had you been crucified? Where did you go? This is what Jesus said, O you foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And now listen to how John concludes his ancient biography of Jesus' life. This is right at the end of the Gospel of John, John 20. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which were not written in this book. But these were written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Even the earliest followers of Jesus, those who walked with him and talked with him and saw him doing miracles and teaching, they struggled to understand that this suffering Christ was going to be a reality. This was so hard for them to swallow. Jesus is the Christ, though, and putting our trust in him, we receive new life in him. Here's the thing. While the Romans appeared to be the enemies of the people of God at that time, the Romans were the enemy. He just appeared to be the enemy. The chief cause of the people's suffering was a much more sinister evil, a deeper and more ancient darkness that needed to be dealt with if his people were going to be set free. This evil was the evil that was underneath the evil that they were experiencing. It was the cause of it. It was the source of the evil and the oppression of God's people. It's the disease that has infected the human heart ever since the first act of distrust and disobedience in the Garden of Eden. And it's what we call sin. Sometimes we think of sin as something that we do, and it is, disobeying Jesus, but sin is also a disease that infects us as human beings and we are powerless to deal with it on our own. And sin dehumanizes us and it deforms us. It prevents us from enjoying the ongoing connection with God that we are meant to have. And we know that sin leads to death. That and those are the enemies that the Christ had to deal with. And because those enemies are so deep that is why the Christ had to actually die in order to defeat the enemies. It's why he didn't just raise up an army and blast them because the enemy was so much deeper and more pervasive than anyone could have thought. He had to defeat all the anti-creation, destructive forces that were underneath all the evil and suffering in the world and he would do that through death on the cross. This is the truth that Paul would have been spending time in the synagogue reasoning and trying to persuade them of from the scriptures. Luke doesn't record what Paul was teaching from 
in the Old Testament, but every scholar is universal in saying that he had to have been at least one part of it teaching from Isaiah 53. And we've mentioned Isaiah 53 before in this series, but this morning I want to read just a few verses from it. They'll be up on the slide. Just so you can see how specific this prophetic word was about the Messiah. Remember, this was written before Jesus died. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. This is breathtaking in its detail, given that it wasn't written after the fact. Jesus' death is how he accomplishes, part of how he accomplishes his mission. But it's not only his death, is it? The grave couldn't hold him. This Messiah was not defeated by death. He rose from the grave, victorious to triumph over sin and death and evil, and he continues to reign now, today. He is the king. So back in Acts 17, verse 4, so Paul's reasoning from these scriptures, trying to prove that Jesus needed to suffer, that the Christ needed to suffer, And the good news is that some were persuaded. It says that some Jews did believe and some devout Greeks, those were God-fearers who would have been at the synagogue, and then some prominent women also put their trust in Jesus as Messiah. Christ's kingdom was advancing in Thessalonica. Yet, unfortunately, as we read, not without significant opposition. The Jews who weren't persuaded, who were jealous, stirred up a mob. They used wicked men, and unleashed them on the city. The riot that ensued had to have been terrifying. It's hard to imagine what it would have been like. But they couldn't find Paul and Silas. They knew where they had been staying at this guy Jason's house. They went there and they could not find him. So instead they dragged Jason out before the city authorities. We have kind of a perfect storm of opposition here. On one side you have Jewish opposition that is religious and theological, And on the other side, you have this civil and political opposition from the city authorities in Thessalonica. Listen to the charge that was brought before them. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, poor Jason. And they all were acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus Kind of imagine the bewilderment of Jason in this moment. But this charge is actually a lot more profound than it sounds. They were saying something very deep when they were charging them of these things. The world was indeed being turned upside down as the gospel was proclaimed, and there really was another king, Jesus. Jesus was greater than Caesar in power and authority. And while followers of Christ would render to Caesar that which was Caesar's, They would not render to Caesar worship, 
or their faithful allegiance. That was for Christ and for Christ alone because they would say Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Their charge that Paul and his companions had turned the world upside down as they proclaimed the gospel is really a matter of perspective. Because if you're Paul, you think you're actually turning the world right side up. Right? You're thinking the world is upside down. I'm turning it right side up as people follow Jesus. It was a disruption of the status quo in the way things worked. But the status quo was upside down. It's not how it was meant to be. This world, it is upside down right now and it is broken. One day, Jesus, the rightful king, will return and he will set it right once and for all. But right now, it is upside down. And chiefly among the ways that it is upside down is that human hearts do not orbit around Christ's heart. Human beings were meant to orbit around, to center upon, to love and enjoy God. And right now, human hearts do not do that. It's actually unnatural for a person to bow the knee before Jesus the Christ. Because our normal way, the upside-down way of operating, is to orbit around ourselves. That's what comes so easily to us and so naturally. To invest in and live for our own individual kingdoms. We just don't naturally bow the knee. It takes God's disruption, God's intervention, God's mercy and power to transform a human heart that it would follow Jesus in this way, in the way we were meant to. Jesus Christ was king of the Jews, even though he was not recognized as such. And he's our king who follow him, right? But more than that, Jesus is Lord of the entire world, of all people and all nations in all places. Years ago, I heard a pastor say something that really stuck with me. He said, Jesus is king of the whole world, yet we treat him as if he were the secretary of afterlife affairs. Jesus is king of the whole world, yet we treat him as if he were the secretary of afterlife affairs. Jesus is often treated as the one that we need to go to to make sure that our afterlife destination is heaven. And that's what he's about. And that's what he is for. That's a very important thing. But when we narrow the Messiah's mission to being the secretary of afterlife affairs, we miss out on how his real living rule right now affects our lives and the ways that we can live in his kingdom right now today. If Jesus is just the secretary of afterlife affairs, he has nothing to say about our daily lives and the things that are most important to us. Our neighbors and our family and our friends and our work, our callings and everyday life. But he is not just the secretary of afterlife affairs, is he? He is king of the whole world and he is Messiah right now. And right now in this moment, he is engaged in our world where we live and where we move and where we do our life, setting it right. Each one of our hearts and all around us, he is doing that right now. As his kingdom advances and as more people follow him, he is really and truly turning the world upside down. He did it in this very diverse 
Roman city in the first century, and he will continue to do that today. One really unique thing about this account in Acts 17 that helps us understand it is that we have these nine verses, and then we also have two letters that Paul wrote to these people that we're also going to look at. Next week, we're going to get into many more specifics about what does it look like and what did it look like for them to live a life that had been turned upside down or maybe set right, depending on your perspective. This morning, though, I do want to look really briefly at 1 Thessalonians. So if you're in your Bible, if you could turn over to 1 Thessalonians, I'll give you a little tip on finding 1 Thessalonians. It's the first short letter with a T. There's a whole bunch of T books right in a row. It's the first one. That's how I find it every time. So due to the persecution and this opposition from both the Jews and the city authorities, Paul had to get out of the city. He left Thessalonica. But he loved these people. He loved this young church. He was concerned about them. How were they doing? They just saw this mob rise up in opposition to them. Did they maintain their faith in Christ or did they abandon him? So because he was curious, he sent Timothy back to the city of Thessalonica. So Timothy went back to check on this young church. And then after he had spent time with them, he went back to Paul and reported to Paul good news. They are following Jesus. And then after Paul got that news from Timothy, he wrote this letter, 1 Thessalonians. And most scholars think that this letter would have been written within a few weeks after this mob and this riot occurred. So this is really coming on the heels of what they were all experiencing. Look at 1 Thess 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So here's Paul again reminding them, I was with you. I know what happened there. I know that it, it was hard and there was lots of opposition, but you still have joy and faith in Christ. He's celebrating this faith and he's tying it in to Christ's suffering. Paul wants them to know they aren't the only ones who are suffering. He is suffering. Other followers of Jesus are suffering. And then chief among them was Jesus who suffered at the hands of his enemies. And despite this, they were full of the Holy Spirit and joy. And this is what I think is one of the most profound ways that Jesus turns the world upside down. Suffering, hardship, Affliction, pain are no longer meaningless in his kingdom. Our suffering and our affliction is not meaningless. Look at Jesus' life. His suffering was a means to life and to joy. It was not pointless. And then look at Paul. Like the Thessalonians, as he suffered, as he was persecuted, and the other apostles that we have seen in Acts, they are filled with joy as well. That's because in the midst of suffering, those who follow Christ experience Christ in a profound way. They experience that he reigns. They experience his comfort and his presence and his love for them. And then most importantly, as we suffer, we are full of hope that what is wrong will be set right one day. 
And that brings us to the major theme that I just want to briefly highlight here of 1 Thessalonians. The crucified and risen Christ will return to complete his work of redemption and renewal. It's woven throughout this entire letter. Look at chapter 1. Almost every chapter ends with Christ's return. Look at chapter 1, verse 10. It says, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Then turn over to chapter 2, verse 19. Paul writes, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? And then go to the next chapter, 3.13. Paul writes, So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. And then the entire second half of chapter 4 is about his return. And then turn over to chapter 5, verse 23. It says, And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul in this letter, remember a few weeks after these events happened, he is deeply concerned and focused on making sure that this young group of followers of Jesus remembered and knew and had before them that the work that Christ began with his death and resurrection was not complete yet. Redemption had begun but they could be sure he would complete it because he was going to return. Return just as physically and present as he had been the first time, yet glorified. And the things that he began, he would finish. While the cross appeared to be the end of Jesus as the Christ, it appeared to be his undoing, it was actually the beginning of the undoing of evil and death and darkness. Paul wanted them and he wants us to have our hope firmly fixed on our Lord's return. He wanted them to be anticipating the return of Christ and then living lives that reflected that kingdom and that fullness that would happen when Christ returned. Their lives were meant to be lived now in this world in anticipation of that day of completion when all things would finally be set right. This was crucial for them to understand. And it's crucial for us to understand. Their ongoing suffering and our ongoing suffering today, when things happen in our world and in our lives, are examples of how these anti-creation forces that the Christ will defeat are still present. In his cross, he delivered a death blow, a decisive death blow, but it's not over yet. And he wanted, Paul wanted them to know don't be alarmed. Christ, your king, will return, and when he returns, he will finish what he started and he will set all things right. They weren't to take this into their own hand. That was really important. They weren't to retaliate. They weren't to try to fix it on their own. They were to trust and wait and hope for his someday return. Church, we follow a crucified and risen Christ. He is right now at this moment reigning as king over all things. One day he will return and one day he will wipe every tear from our eyes. He will renew our bodies 
and turn this world right side up once and for all. Evil will be dealt with. Every time we pray or like we sang in the second song today, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, we are asking him to make it so. Let's put our hope today and this week firmly in him to do this. That the pain and the suffering and the affliction that we still experience is not meaningless and it will be set right by him when he returns. We can trust him just like we trust him with the forgiveness of our sins and with new life. We can trust him to reign today and forever and ever. Let's pray. Jesus, our hearts need you to speak truth to them this morning. We believe that the world was changed when you died on the cross and rose from the grave. And we believe that you will one day return and complete what you began there. Lord, give us hope. Help us to anticipate good things from you. And in the face of challenges and sufferings, Lord, would you be our comfort? Would your tangible presence be with us? Lord, I pray that you would help our lives to worship and reflect you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.